All right, let me go ahead and begin our time with prayer and then we can get started. Father, thank you for bringing us here together this morning once again. We thank you for the fellowship that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we get to come and to rejoice to be together. Thank you for the blessing that it is to get to catch up, to get to see one another, to be able to encourage one another. Thank you for your word which centers all of this so that we can have the truth of God to anchor our relationships so that we can know why we're here together. We can know the purpose that we are supposed to carry out in one another's lives. Uh, we thank you for the clarity that you bring about what you expect of us and what you want from us and what pleases you. We pray that we would long to do that and that every moment we would be, uh, that we would be not only guided but also constrained by uh, the desire to bring pleasure to your name and to bring delight to you. And God, we pray that you would help us to honor you uh, in this church and among the world as we go out from it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are looking once again this morning at the subject of decision-making or knowing and doing God's will. Uh, just to catch up for those who may not have been here so far, we spent a couple of weeks looking at the subject of uh, the sovereign will of God or really just the will of God, uh, which consists essentially of two dimensions or two parts. Uh, God's sovereign will, that which he makes sure comes to pass, which is also known as God's will of decree. And uh, it is not necessarily that which pleases God in every sense. God's sovereign will uh, is what takes place through because God is in control of everything. And this can include all things that are good and bad, uh, morally speaking, and even things that are what we might just refer to as neutral. They just happen. Um, God's sovereign will is paired in scripture with God's moral will or God's will of decree. Uh, God desires for people to do certain things. God takes pleasure in certain things, not so much the doing of them himself, although there is that, but he takes pleasure in his creatures doing certain things. And he tells us what those things are. He expects us to worship him. He expects us to honor him, to serve him, to give him thanks. He expects us to do all the things that are laid out on the pages of scripture. And uh, that is our job, is to discern, to figure out, to know from the Bible what God's moral will is, and to do that with all our might. Now, there are some things within what is right and wrong where we still have to make decisions, and we're going to look at that later on as far as the actual positive way to make that case or to, uh, to make those decisions. But uh, starting last week, we began to look at some common ways that people take uh, the moral will of God, what is right and wrong, and they look for more than what God has said in his word about how to make their decisions. Uh, they will take certain ways that may even come in biblical dress or biblical language, and they will use those as their decision-making criteria. So rather than simply going to the scriptures and saying, this is what we have, let's carry out these righteous commands with wisdom, instead of doing that, we often look for other ways to make decisions. And there are a lot of reasons that we do this. We've talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Some of them would include that we, uh, we don't know that the scripture speaks on the particular issue. Uh, sometimes we want something that's more certain because we think that that indicates that God is telling us to do something and therefore he will bring a particular outcome if we follow that instruction. But whatever the reason might be, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of ways where Christians can go outside of what God says in trying to figure out what God actually wants them to do. 
and we, we want to talk about a few of those. Now, last time we talked about one in particular, which is what we call the leading of the Spirit. And there is a, there is a phrase that's roughly uh, that phrase, being led by the Spirit, that's found in Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, 14, and in Galatians 5, 18. And we looked at how in those contexts that being led by the Spirit isn't really about getting new information uh, it's not being pulled and led by your emotions as if that is the Holy Spirit doing that to you and bringing you to uh, feel a certain way. But instead, to be led by the Spirit is set in those instances as being led to righteousness, being driven to do what is right rather than to do what is sinful and unrighteous and of the flesh. Uh, so that was the first one that we began to look at. And uh, when we left off last time, there are a couple more that are on your sheet and then even a couple more that I've uh, added that I want to look at this morning. But that was the first one that we looked at, the leading of the Spirit. And uh, we sometimes will associate this leading of the Spirit uh, as Christians, unfortunately, with feelings and impressions, urges, desires, and so on. We think that that means that the Spirit is leading us to do something. But when we look at the scriptures, we find that that phrase, being led by the Spirit, uh, never says those things. And in fact, in certain, uh, certain cases, indicates something very explicitly not those things. So when we talk about the leading of the Spirit, this is not really a way to make decisions as far as going above and beyond what the Bible says. The leading of the Spirit simply leads us to do what God has already said and what is righteous in His sight. So this is the first uh, blank, if you have it, the leading of the Spirit when we're addressing common methods of decision making. Uh, the next one of these that we want to then look at in earnest this morning is called having a peace about something. Having a peace about something. Um, this refers to making decisions based upon feelings or uh, the lack of particular feelings. Now, when we say that phrase, having a peace about something, um, what is the passage or what are the passages that people would pull from in order to adopt that language for decision making? Does anyone know? Where does that concept of having a peace come from? Galatians, fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, so Galatians uh, chapter 5 lists out a number of things that are part of the fruit of the Spirit. And that, that is in that list. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Um, that may be uh, less visibly in mind, but perhaps that's in some people's mind. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Philippians 4, yeah, Philippians 4, verse 7, yeah, let's look there. Philippians 4, Philippians 4, let's read verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, when people refer to being at peace about a decision or having um, a peace is kind of the idea that's talked about, this concept of a peace that is upon them or that is in their heart, um, 
very often this is what they're thinking about. And they're thinking about it sometimes in response to prayer because Philippians uh, 4, 6 talks about praying. And they're often talking about it in contrast to the idea of being anxious about something. So the idea under this paradigm is when you are going to make a decision, um, instead of being worried about it, instead of being unsure if it's the right decision, uh, instead of being nervous and tense, somehow through the course of either making a, you know, a particular decision or just through the course of praying about it and feeling different, people come to have what they will call uh, a peace about it or to be at peace or even to do what this passage says in some ways where they're not anxious about it. And what they do then is to take that idea and say, well, I am not anxious about this decision. I am at peace about this decision. Therefore, it is the right decision for me to make in this particular instance. And in fact, it is so right that regardless of what someone else might say about it or any other options that are on the table, this is the decision that I should make. So that if someone questions you, well, they don't really have a leg to stand on because you have a piece about it from God. And a lot of times this is accompanied with the idea of having prayed about it, which then gives you even more of a trump card over anyone being able to question it or, or any other options that may present arguments for themselves to be the choice that you would make instead. So you come to have a peace about it, and that then becomes the indicator that this is the decision that you should make, and in many cases, then that carries over into the decision that you must make. It is authoritative, and if you do something else, then you're really not following God's will for your life. You might even be sinning by not following that. Well, let's look at what this passage says and see if we get there. It says, be anxious for nothing, uh, so there is certainly a desire that Paul has that they would not be worried, that they would not be anxious, that they would not fret over various things. Um, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Uh, one thing to note is that this is not a blanket uh, forbidding of any kind of feelings or concern or feelings of concern. If you look back in chapter 2, you'll find uh, that in verse 20, Paul speaks about Timothy. And in Philippians 2.20, he says of him, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be what? Concerned for your welfare. Concerned. Same language. Same word. This is what he is, he says, Timothy is noble and commendable, and I want to send him to you because he is, in a certain sense, worried about you. He's concerned about you. And uh, Paul says this is a good thing. So the kind of anxiety, first of all, that Paul is talking about is not that you never feel any kind of nervousness or tension or concern or worry in any way. Is that it's a, an unbelieving type of anxiety. It's the kind of anxiousness and worry and fear that is, uh, that is unreasonable and that is not brought to God and aligned with what he actually is concerned about and that doesn't trust him for the circumstances that surround you and for the outcome of those circumstances. 
So here he's saying, be anxious for nothing. Uh, what he is saying is basically don't be someone who just frets all the time. And instead, you need to bring this before God and do something about it. So first of all, that's, what, that's the, the scope of this. So then he says, by, uh, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we pray to God, we ask him about the things that we're worried about. This is what we ought to do. If we're worried about something, then we ought to bring it to him. Uh, when Jesus talked about being, uh, not worrying about what we'll eat or what we'll drink or what we'll wear, the opposite of that in Matthew 6 is to trust in God instead. God knows, God cares. And instead, we're supposed to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. In both cases, the idea is that rather than focusing upon the circumstance, we are supposed to bring those circumstances before God, both by prayer and by understanding his truth. So what happens if you do this? Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is a promise here that God is going to bring something upon you. And this is something he says is incredible. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. You're not even able to grasp it. So that there is some real effect that this should have upon your worries and your fears. Okay, so this, this is true. The question is, what does this actually imply for decision making? And you note here that just because you may be anxious about a decision um, and just because you bring that prayer to God about your decision, this does not imply that the peace you get when you ask God about it is affirming any particular decision that you may then end up making. That's what's missing from this text. It doesn't say be anxious for nothing, for no decision that you make, but just ask God and he will give you peace when you have chosen or thought about doing the one that he thinks is right. It doesn't say that, but that's the way that this is often treated. If you just pray about it, you get a peace about it, and then you're just, okay, now I'm comfortable with this, so this must be what God wants me to do. And that's not the way that this passage speaks at all. Uh, so what you have here then is that the absence of a feeling of anxiety does not imply that this is literally the one action that God wants you to take. Um, in fact, I would even go so far as to say the absence of a feeling of anxiety doesn't necessarily mean that this action is even permissible in God's sight. We don't judge whether something is right or wrong in God's sight by whether or not we feel a certain type of worry or anxiety about it. Now, sometimes our conscience will make us anxious because we know something is wrong. So there is certainly the idea that we uh, can be anxious about something for that purpose and that uh, not having that particular type of worry on the basis of our informed conscience, uh, that could be an indication that it is at least permitted. But the absence of a feeling of anxiety and worry doesn't give us a free pass to do that thing at all. Lots of people have seared their consciences and have uh, under-informed consciences to where they, they don't think that something is wrong, but it actually is very wrong. And sadly, this type of idea of having a peace about something, uh, citing this type of language, is often used to justify sinful decisions 
that God's word explicitly forbids or um, unwise decisions that someone doesn't want to hear counsel about from others and doesn't want to have questioned by others. So the absence of anxiety doesn't necessarily mean that you're making a wise decision or a right one. Uh, On the other hand, it also is true on the other side of things that you might be concerned about something and you might have feelings of uh, nervousness or something like that and actually be making a right decision. Be making a good decision. Again, Timothy was concerned about the welfare of the Philippians. Um, And you have an example in 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at this on another uh, subject here in a moment. But 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 12 and 13, When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. No rest for my spirit. We call that being at peace? I don't think so. No rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Paul kept going to a different place trying to find out where Titus was, and he was trying to get a report from Titus about how the church was doing because he was concerned about the church. You say, um, how do you know that was the case? Well, in uh, chapter 11 and verse 3, Paul says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He says at the end of that chapter in verse 28, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So Paul had kind of a, a recurring type of good stress and concern about things that mattered. So this is not the kind of, you know, life of chill and never have any kind of worries, you know, don't worry, be happy kind of. If God is uh, for you and you are doing what he says and you're praying, then you're never going to feel any kind of nervousness, never going to feel any kind of care or concern. Your heart rate will never be elevated. You know, this is not, this is not the way the Bible describes this. So being at peace is really, really not a great Uh, decision-making paradigm. Again, if you connect that with your conscience and you're convicted and you're feeling that because you know that, well, that's a different matter. And we'll talk about that in a future session. Uh, But we just need to make sure that we understand that this is not the indicator one way or another. All right, so that is uh, the idea of having a peace about something. Uh, Questions about that? Uh, Thoughts about this idea of being at peace, having a peace, or, uh, or how we might sort through uh, using this concept or how we might even respond to people. What, anything on the subject? That was like pretty peaceful to me. Yeah, Kyle. Yeah. Yeah, probably probably a lot of times in the moment is not a helpful time to talk about a lot of things. I mean, um, separating, you know, the evaluation of the process from that particular emotional moment of decision 
um, where there's not so much at stake right there, um, where you've had time to think about it, where you're not challenging. What, I mean, a lot of times with this, somebody wants something. You know, they're, you're, when, when they are thinking about it in these terms, and a lot of the decisions that we make, we, we do so because we want that thing. And especially if it goes outside of biblical um, principles, I mean, we are trying to justify and rationalize that. And so we're not really going to be, at that moment, particularly prone to biblical reasoning, necessarily. Um, so, yeah, it could be um, if you're addressing the foolishness of something. Now, uh, if someone is saying, you know, I, I wasn't sure whether I should divorce my spouse. Um, you know, we're just kind of things are rocky and so on or whatever. And no, there's not any biblical grounds for it. They might not say there's not any biblical grounds. But they're saying, you know, we just did this. And I, I just, you know, it's been so hard. And then as soon as I thought it, I just had such a peace about doing that. And I just, my, I was, all my anxiety was gone and my fear was gone. Well, in that moment, you, you might actually step up and say, well, you know, what does God say about divorce and marriage? What, what does he say about that? Like, you, I understand you may feel peace and that's understandable because, hey, this is, you know, the thought of maybe not having this type of conflict anymore is uh, appealing to you. But, but what does God's word say? So that would be a little bit different. When, it's, when they're saying that they are making a decision in that moment that's directly violating the moral will of God, it might be a little bit more like, no, I'm just going to go ahead and directly confront that. Um, as opposed to, you know, maybe you make a judgment call that the wisdom uh, aspect of that is, if it's, a, if it's a wisdom decision, all right, let's, let's grow and let's give the opportunity to do this maybe at a, a time when I can explain this more thoroughly and they're more willing to listen. So... I can't tell you right or wrong. That would be a wisdom call, I think, on that. But, but in particular, if somebody is justifying a sin by this, then the idea of reproof and rebuke and showing them from the Scripture that what they're doing is wrong would be, uh, would be the way that we should tend to go. Yeah, that's a good question. Does that answer what you're going for? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Good. Other thoughts? Yeah, Dan. Yeah, it's not, you have to make it compute. You know, if, if, you, if you just drop in this thing, I mean, like you guys leave this Sunday school class today, and you know, your friend is, says something on the internet, like, hey, you know, I'm this, and I'm such a piece, and, and you're like, well, you know, that's not how it works. And you just, like, directly say, that's just, you know, it would be more helpful to, uh, to come at that from a little bit more extended type of, well, what do you mean it doesn't work? And immediately get defensive and so on. So yeah, I think there's some, there's a lot of wisdom in saying, like, let's, let's uh, find a way, in particular, if there's not a moral issue directly at stake in this moment, let's try to reshape the paradigm. And let's try to, to see where they're coming from. What are you basing this on? Why are you thinking this way? Um, and then go from there. So, and, and that's the case with so many things with these, these paths of decision-making. But 
we, uh, we do want to draw the line where people are doing something that is just, okay, look, I know you feel this, but what does the scripture say? You know, what does the Bible actually say about this particular matter? Um, in this case, then, you need to make sure you're doing what God says. And there's just clear, direct texts that speak to this. So. Okay. okay, anything else? No? Okay, let's, uh, let's look at the next, which would be um, open and closed what? Doors. Open and closed doors, also known as um, interpreting circumstances. Uh, in what situations do people use open and closed doors for decision-making in the kind of sense that we've been describing in this class? Looking for a job. Yep. Yep. I wasn't even thinking about this. I got this job offer. And, you know, it came out of nowhere. And, uh, you know, I know somebody that works at this company. And uh, in addition to that, it's like it's in a place that has the same number of, you know, the address as the house I grew up on. Okay, now that's maybe a little bit more. But those are the kinds of things that we start to say, this must be from God. It must be. Okay, but yeah, a job opportunity comes. What else? Yeah, yeah. So the uh, in a relationship, uh, you know, certainly school decisions and things like that. Um, uh, moving, um, buying a house. Uh, you know, somebody we we weren't really thinking about moving, but you know. Uh, there's this house that we saw and it was like on the other side of the country and uh, it was just like all these circumstances and then it was here and it was available and we weren't expecting it. And so God must want us to do that. And that last step is the problem. It's not the problem to say, wow, what an amazing opportunity. And uh, man, we should, this would be a really good idea to take advantage of this. I mean, we, we didn't even think about this, but now that this has presented itself uh, and God has providentially put us in this position, you know, now that we compare this to the other things that we might do, staying here or moving somewhere else, this actually seems like a really good idea. I think we should do this. And uh, this also doesn't stop you from saying, when you have made that decision and when you've done that, you could say, God, thank you for arranging these circumstances to where we had this opportunity. Thank you for making this possible. Thank you for helping us to bring this about. You can say all of those things about an open door, quote unquote, without saying that the door being open means you had to walk through it. That's the distinction. And that's what we want to uh, be careful of. And again, with all these things, I hope that you're, you're starting to see the common theme. The problem with using some of these things, in addition to the way that it often can trump uh, scripture itself or short circuit wisdom, one of the biggest problems is that we feel compelled and bound in our conscience to do something that God has not commanded us to do. We find something additional and we say we have to do this or we must not do this when God has not actually said so. Uh, so yeah, these are a few things. We see that uh, 
well, this didn't work out here. You know, I tried to do this thing and it was a closed door. That door was closed. And so I guess that just must mean God doesn't want me to go there or to do that. Or this door is open. This situation is available. This job, this house, this school, this um, relationship. And so God must want me to do that thing. Um, let me look at a few passages that, that speak about this particular issue. Uh, first of all, Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, uh, verse 9 and 10. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Do you see that? I keep praying about this, and I want to finally be able to have success in coming to you within the, what here would be the sovereign will of God. Uh, Paul has a desire that is in and of itself not the only option. He wants to go to Rome to preach the gospel there. That's what he says in verse 11. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. And uh, he says in verse 13, I have often planned or I've planned often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. And then he says, verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He keeps trying to get to Rome to preach the gospel. He's, he's, that's where he wants to go. But he has some stuff that keeps him from going there. Now we actually get a hint into uh, what that is in chapter 15. And he says, um, let's see, in verse 20. Well, yeah, so starting in verse 20, and thus I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I wouldn't build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, they who had not heard him shall understand. For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. So he's saying, look, I, I, uh, I've wanted to come to you, but I've had a lot of things going on here. I have, there were places in these regions where he was. He describes in verse 19, Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Basically all the places Paul went on his first three missionary journeys as described in the book of Acts. Starting in chapter 13 through uh, right in the transition from chapter 19 to 20, which is when he's writing this letter to the Romans. And he says, I've been trying to come to you. But I've been kept. I've been prevented. What was it that prevented Paul from going to Rome? Well, he would go to all these places. The Spirit of God, actually, in his case, as the prophet, we looked at this in Acts 16 last time, directed him to Philippi and said, go, come over here and help us. Um, he got a direct message about that from God as an apostle and as a, and as a prophet. And then, uh, but then he also had these church circumstances that he needed to shore up. He understood that the churches were not solidified the way that they needed to be. The whole reason where, why he is in Corinth at the moment that he's writing this letter is because the Corinthian church had some problems that he needed to deal with. And so he had been to there and he had left and then he'd been back. He had written multiple letters to them. 
And he was hoping, um, when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, you can see he's hoping that the church is ready to even to be a place where he's ready to, it's all shored up and he's ready to go on even from them. Okay, so what you have here is Paul keeps trying to go to Rome and he can't get there. And so a lot of people might look at that and say, hey, this is a closed door. I mean, obviously, I've been trying to get to Rome for like 15 years and I just can't make it happen. I guess God just doesn't want me to go to Rome. I mean, he must want me to stay here and he must want me to do all these things. Paul didn't really see it that way. He kept praying. He kept asking. He didn't view a, a no answer in prayer or circumstances as a permanent no. So he didn't interpret it in that way, and we should not either. Um, so that is a closed door that Paul kept trying to go through over in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, if you want to look there. Verse 17 and 18. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet, what does it say? Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. So he kept trying to go. Uh, Paul tried to go more than once, and what does he say? We, we couldn't get there. That's why he's writing 1 Thessalonians. They had to send Timothy with the letter because Paul himself, for whatever reason, wasn't able to go. Now, a lot of people today would chalk this up and say, well, God doesn't want me to go. And what does Paul say? Well, Satan's getting in the way. Does he know this because, you know, Satan showed up and appeared to him and said, ha, can't get by me. No, he, he's just interpreting the situation and saying, look, this church needs me there. There are people who are hindering me. It seems pretty clear there are some opponents. He even talked about that in the preceding verses. Um, people who are hostile to the faith. And there was something about the persecution aspect of that that was preventing him from going there. Uh, point being, just because he had a closed door doesn't mean that he stopped trying to make it happen. So a closed door that Paul kept going through. And this happened uh, multiple times. Now, on the other side, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I read this earlier. 2 Corinthians 2. Verse 12 and 13. Okay, so background. Paul had written to uh, the Corinthians. He had written us what he calls a severe letter. We read about it in chapter 7. Uh He's not sure how they're going to respond. He's not sure. Because there were some things that he had to rebuke them about. Um, the relationship was shaky. And he's just not sure. So he writes the letter. And then he sends Titus out. Uh, well, I guess he sent the letter with Titus. And he is in Troas, which is in Asia Minor. And Corinth is over across the sea and uh, Achaia. And he says, okay, how are they going to respond? So verse 12, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord. Now, if there's ever a circumstance that we ought to take advantage of, is it not that? A door was opened for me in the Lord. I'm assuming that this is the uh, 
gospel opportunity that he elsewhere speaks of and in fact asks for prayer for, Colossians 4, 3. So he has this wide open, time to preach the gospel, right? Verse 13, I had no rest from my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Paul left behind an open door with the opportunity to preach the gospel. And this is the kind of thing that we would, in our bed at night, lay there and say, I am doing something wrong. Like, God gave me this opportunity. I should, I should have done this. But why did he do it? Well, because he wants to know how the Corinthian church is doing. He, he's concerned. He's so concerned about them. Now, this is just full of um, messages for us in all kinds of ways. Um, not least of all is the fact that we don't just cast aside fellow believers for the sake of the unbelieving world needing the gospel. Um, our spiritual, spiritual stability is vital in God's sight as well. But on the, uh, the idea of decision making, here he is saying, I had this perfect opportunity and yet I left it behind because circumstances and opportunities, even of the best kind, are not binding upon us. They are not binding you don't have to go through something, no matter how unlikely it seems, no matter how godly of an opportunity it gives you, that opportunity is not binding upon you. And it's not binding upon someone else who doesn't take it, such that we would judge them for not doing that. We have to look at all the circumstances and all the opportunities available to us and say, we are going to make what decision we think is the best in light of those uh, those opportunities. Now, again, we'll talk about how to make those judgment calls in a class session to come. But the point is, uh, an open door is not necessarily something that you should go through. And it's not something at all that you have to go through. Um, now, another thing about the open door, and then I'm going to take some questions. In Acts 14... Acts 14 and verse uh, 27, Paul and um, Barnabas returned from their first missionary journey. They come back to Antioch where they had been sent from. And it says this, when they had arrived and gathered a church, the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Look at that, how they are reporting God's sovereignty and God's grace and God's mercy and giving him credit for what he had done. Paul simultaneously understood that God opening doors is not binding, but that he is the one who makes them possible. And that when we choose to go through any particular option and do that, he's the one that gets the credit for that. He gets the credit. And we thank him for having placed those opportunities in our lives. Um, by the way, one more that I want to read to you at the end of 1 Corinthians uh, 16, verse 9. He says, A wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. 
I love that. Not because the adversaries, but what I love is that he's saying, look, I have this opportunity and this opportunity is not indicated by the fact that no one is against me or that it's easy. He's just saying this opportunity is clearly here. A wide door has been opened. He's going to stay in Ephesus. He's going to keep ministering there. And we read about that in, in Acts, how he was there for uh, a long time, over two years, really three years. Uh, and so he stayed there. People were hostile to him. There were a lot of opponents. And yet here he is saying, hey, it's a wide open door. So difficulty in a circumstance, opposition in a circumstance, suffering in a circumstance doesn't mean that it's not an open door, quote unquote. We need to have proper biblical perspective on these things. Um, so questions so far on this idea of uh, open doors, closed doors. Thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great, that is a great way to put it. Yeah, just uh, sometimes we are led to believe that if God wants us to do something, then it will be easy for us to do that. Uh, and the process will be easy, but that doesn't actually, that's not actually the case at all. And yet sometimes God does want us to do things that are very difficult. Um, yeah, that is a great point. Yep, sometimes we might also think that if God wants us to do something, it will become abundantly clear to us. Not just easy, but abundantly clear like it's very obviously the only option that we can take a lot of times we hesitate in our decision making uh, or we will not just hesitate but we just never even make um, an active choice we end up making a de facto choice to not do that thing because it's not just super clear you know everything doesn't line up it's not all pros it's just some it's, it's, it's got a few cons to it or, or, you know, the three or four or ten choices that we have are, you know, they're kind of roughly the same and maybe one is, you know, a little bit better than the rest, but I'm not sure. It's not super clear. I'm not sure. And then we say, well, I'm not sure what God wants me to do. Nothing jumps off the page at me. And then what do we do? We just kind of don't do anything and then we leave it to the circumstances around us, to other people's decisions. We abdicate our own responsibility in our own life. Now we might say, well, okay, uh, like you might be in a group of people deciding where to go for dinner and nobody really cares that much. And then you're like, well, I don't care at all. Like I just am going to go there. I I literally can't taste anything and I'm, you know, I have unlimited money. So I'm just going to go somewhere. It doesn't matter to me whatsoever. I'm just going to get enough food. Um, And then you don't care if other people make the decisions for you. But in some cases, you might not want other people making those decisions for you. So you want to make sure that you take the responsibility that you need to have. So when we are thinking about opportunities, um, Paul asks for prayer in Colossians 4, verse 3. Oh, yeah, right. 
Mm-hmm. Casting, yeah, casting lots. Um, yeah, so there are, again, with so many of these things, the issue, doing anything, rolling dice or things like, so there's a couple of things. The Old Testament did have certain methods, the Urim and the Thummim. I think I mentioned something about that particular thing last time, the Urim and the Thummim. But, you know, there, there were ways that Israel could actually inquire of God, like yes or no, and should we go do this? And then they also had prophets that they could go and get a message back from once they inquired of the Lord. So for them, often um, what inquiring of the Lord would, well, yeah, what inquiring of the Lord would mean would refer to... Um, actually getting a message from him in one way or another that would actually be discernible and clear and like objective right um a lot of times we will take casting lots you know you name it right casting lots rolling dice um flipping coins things like that um and the problem as with so many things is when they become authoritative and when they become the thing that you're supposed to do um proverbs sixteen thirty three says the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. Okay, so that's there. What does that mean? Well, let's say you flip a coin and you say, heads, we're going to, um, heads, we're going to move to this town. Tails, we're going to move to that town because you just can't choose between the two. Well, then you flip heads or, and it lands heads. So you start making plans to move to this town, but then you run into kind of some other obstacles. You're like, but, but we flip the coin and we, we cast lots, so to speak. And God wants us to do this thing because he made that decision. Well, that's not where that's going. What that's saying is that even in the quote-unquote chance things in life, uh, God still is involved in every little thing that happens so that he is never far away. And there is, in the ultimate sense, you know, no such thing as just a lucky bounce or some kind of luck or something like that. Um, it means they're all part of God's sovereign will. Everything that he does, his will of decree touches everything in the universe, including even things that are quote-unquote random uh, or chance. So I would say feel free to use those kinds of things. Just don't think this means that God is, you know, telling us what to do through this. Uh, So, yeah, you want to spin a wheel? All right, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go for dinner tonight? Let's just, I don't know, let's just look here and put your finger on a map, right? But just don't say that God is commanding you to go there. You know, if you get there and it's an hour wait, go to the place next door. It doesn't matter, you know. But even more so with uh, probably bigger decisions, if uh, what we might call bigger decisions. But th- this is kind of in line with, you know, putting out signs. And, and basically, we're just looking for additional information. You know, we're looking for more information that is definitive from God. And that is of what so many of these things are tied together by. Uh, and it, that's not going to be there. It's not going to be additional information that God is communicating to you that you should or should not do this. Or if you do this thing or don't do that, then you'll have a particular outcome. Um, a couple other things just to note here that I'd like to uh, add to. Well, let me, let me read Philippians 4.3, okay? And then uh, just mention a couple of other things to as addendums to your sheet. One, Philippians 4.3 praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. Uh, This is simply praying for opportunities, praying for opportunities, praying for an open door. Again, Paul saw in 2 Corinthians 2, he saw the open door as an opportunity that he was not sinning if he didn't take. But we do want to pray for opportunities that we can take advantage of. And then he says in verse 4 that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So he wants to pray for clarity, but he also wants to pray that he would have the opportunity to do this. Um, 
So, you know, we, again, we get those opportunities and it, it may be that we decide in that moment, oh, no, you know, I, I have this chance. Oh, there's a lot of people out here today, but man, I got a phone call and my wife is at home and she is like sick as a dog and she needs me. You know, like I, I need to go home. I need to go home. Okay, because I'm supposed to love my wife and this particular way at this time, I think this, I think this is a need that I need to fulfill this responsibility. And you're not sinning if you don't uh, take advantage of that one opportunity in order to make a judgment call about what's better in that particular circumstance. Now, these are complicated decisions at times, but the point is an open door, an opportunity doesn't necessarily mean this is what I need to do. All right, uh, just a couple of quick, uh, quick things. Prayer, uh, prayer. It is appropriate for prayer to be part of the decision-making process. I want to talk more about this later on. Um, although I will say that sometimes we, over, uh, we over-allocate the amount of the decision-making process that uh, we should give to prayer. Sometimes we do nothing but pray. And sometimes we think that certain things are going to come through prayer that God has not said are going to come through prayer. And that is the biggest problem with regard to the things I'm talking about here. Trying to get extra information uh, James 1 verse 5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is a promise that if you ask in faith without any doubting, then you'll be given wisdom. The question is, what does that actually entail? Well, if we overread this, we'll say that when you pray, God will tell you what the wisest decision to make is, and he'll make it obvious what that decision is but the problem is that's not even how wisdom works in the first place wisdom involves making a judgment call uh, it's about how do I actually apply this in this particular situation uh, anything beyond that and you're going outside the realm of wisdom and now you're going into the realm of precept and command uh, there's nothing here that indicates that you will know a particular path to take or that you'll have some kind of a knowledge of when God has in some way communicated that to you he just simply says that you're going, he's going to give it to you. So what you ought to do in this case is to pray, be confident that God will answer that, and then act in the way that you think is the wisest according to all that you know from the Bible and everything that you pull together to make that decision in that particular situation. So uh, asking for wisdom is not the same thing as asking for uh, direct directions as to do this versus do that and getting a very clear answer of which one is right or wrong. That's not the framework of wisdom in the first place, and it's not what James promises here. He simply says, trust God that when you act, you are going to be acting according to the wisdom that he has given, uh, he, that he has given to you. And you need to make sure that you are asking if you need it. And of course, we all lack wisdom, so we should ask God for wisdom, especially in the trials context that he's talking about there. Um, the other, the other uh, way that we sometimes look for this is, uh, and this is connected with the leading of the Spirit that we talked about last time, or the way people use that phrase. But uh, basically, just having an urge or a, or a compulsion that you should do something. You just feel very strongly then you ought that you ought to do something. And um, a lot of times, this is this will overlap with something that is good from the Bible. Like I feel very compelled to go into talk to this person about the gospel or I feel really strongly that I need to go and you know speak with this person about this biblical matter you know I just felt and like it just had to be the Lord it had to be the Holy Spirit 
Well, okay, it, it is the Spirit's work in your life to uh, not only uh, to convince you of what is true in the Bible, but also to help you have the spiritual wisdom and understanding to connect biblical principles, to connect the dots of that to the everyday circumstances of your life. But once again, just because you see that and you say, I really feel like I, I should do that, that doesn't mean that that is the one and only option for carrying out that biblical command at that given moment. So what you can say is, I mean, th there are, if you were thinking about something else, like, okay, here's a guy right here that needs the gospel that I'm sitting next to on the bus or something. And then there's somebody over there. Well, they, they might need it too. So, but we just get these, you know, kind of tunnel vision and we were compelled to talk to this guy. Well, is it any less right to go talk to this person that's up there, to move up there and sit next to them? No, it's not. It's just not what's on our mind. So we shouldn't just assume, well, because we feel particularly strongly about this person that's right next to us because that's kind of in our face, we shouldn't assume that that means that it's God telling us you need to talk to this person over and above that person. Uh, the compulsion to do something like that is the fruit of the Spirit convicting you that the Scripture is true and needs to be applied. Um, but there is not a particular requirement that it must be applied only in this particular way, only in that particular circumstance. Um, we have a lot of varying options for how to carry those things out at times. Now, again, in some cases, um, it's just, you know, this is the situation you're in and it's just there's no other option. And it's like to, do, to not do this thing here would be to just do nothing and to have, you know, to not actually carry out the commands of Scripture. But we, again, just need to be very careful that we don't say, I am compelled to do this particular thing. We need to look and see where is the Scripture informing us on this and, and uh, would disobey applying this passage in this particular circumstance or this way that's on our mind or that we feel strongly about would disobeying that or would not doing that necessarily be the same thing as disobedience? Or is there maybe something else that we ought to make a different judgment and make a different decision about what to do at this moment? Um, so yes, those, uh, the urges that we have, feeling compelled or convinced that we ought to do something is often very tightly connected with biblical convictions and with the work of the Spirit in our lives to convince us that Scripture is true and to persuade us to do what Scripture says. Uh, However, we just need to be very careful about interpreting that as particularly binding in the application and the target of that effort at that given moment. Uh, clear enough? Sorry. That is uh, maybe a little bit less time than we, than we need to go over that particular thing, but hopefully that's uh, helpful to think about. All right, let's uh, wrap up for this morning. Um, next week, by the way, we have our members meeting in here in this hour, so just be aware of that. If you're a member, we ask you to be here. If you're not, then we would ask you to wait until you are to come to those. Uh, that will be this hour next week on Sunday morning. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this time together today. Uh, thank you for your word, which gives us clarity as to what you want, and help us to know it know it well. Help us to uh, think about it and to meditate upon it often, day and night, and that we might apply it with wisdom. God, help us to help each other in this. Help us to refine our way of thinking so that we would think in a way that pleases you and we would act in a way that pleases you from a pure heart. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.